1: See how
0: Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M-I-R-O.com. Hi guys, Pete and Rich here. The Boys in the Band podcast is back. But before we get into the main show, we've just got to tell you about a cool deal from our sponsors, Beer52.
2: Yep, they've come up with a great deal for listening to the Boys and About podcast. So if you fancy a free case of eight craft beers from Beer52, just go to beer52.com forward slash band, and all you have to do is cover the postage cost of 5 95
0: And as well as that free case, you also get signed up to Beer52's beer club, the largest in the world with over 150,000 active members. And each month, members are sent a case with a different theme, as well as a magazine and a snack. You can, of course, pause or cancel at any time, but it's well worth trying
2: out. So head over to bs52.com forward slash band for that offer and we hope you enjoy the upcoming pods. Welcome to this week's episode of the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Richard Gallagher.
0: And I'm Peter Smith and this week we're joined by Sim from the 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster and it's good to chat to Sim because... As we've said previously, me and Rich are both at Unit Brighton. This is a Brighton-based band, so we had some nice crossover points. But he takes us through their three albums and the iconic music video for Psychosis Safari, Rich, which I just can so clearly remember sitting down and watching on MTV2 over and over again. It was just an iconic
2: music video, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And that sort of uh, that iconic car featured in it with the, the orange flames down the sides. And, uh, yeah, Sim even tells us it was Liam, one of Liam Gallagher's favourite videos at the time. So, uh, yeah, high praise indeed. Well, there you um, go. Yeah. And Sim, yeah, he also lets us in on some, you know, some really interesting stuff about uh, when the band's music appeared in, in adverts, in films. That you Rock is just a great soundtrack to films and adverts. Yeah, but um, as Sim says, put that commercial stuff to one side because when they're on
0: stage, face-to-face with the audience, you know, that connection was really important to them. The impact of the music was really important, as he says here.
1: I think amazing gig experiences, you know, stay with people forever, don't they? They never go because people who are into music, you know, it's the most transformative thing that that will happen in your life. There's nothing that can compare to being, you know, how how you get moved at a gig or a concert or... how how music can kind of yeah like catapult you into a different dimension
2: yeah yeah i think that connection that influence that that music can have on people is something that was really very very important to sim Uh, really really conveyed that excellently in, in the pod so um yeah plenty to get into on this pod really enjoyed chatting to sim um and so here he is sim from the 80s matchbox beeline disaster This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're joined by Simran, bass player in the 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster. How's it going, Sim?
1: Good, man. Good. Yeah. How are you? Yeah,
0: we're good. Good. good, Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, Thanks for asking. Looking forward to this chat. We were just talking off air, weren't we, just before we started, that me and Rich were at Union Brighton and obviously that's where you boys were from. So it's, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have uh, lots of uh, common interests to talk about in the next uh, half hour or so. Memorable gigs and gig venues.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Sim, we always kick off these podcasts, though, with a sound check, uh, three quick fire questions. And the first one is always, whereabouts are you right now?
1: Uh, I am in Walthamstow, East London, uh, at home. And uh, yeah, just uh, wondering why it's still so cold.
2: <laughs> I know, it's May. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, okay.
1: it's crazy, Cra-
2: craziness. Um, what about uh, music at the moment then, Sim? What, uh, what are you into? What are you listening to?
1: Um i've been listening to uh i really like that band bad nerves they're a new band um with dry cleaning record um
0: into dry cleaning definitely that's been a great album isn't it uh,
1: i mean there's just so much great music at the moment um, and has been for for a few years actually um it seems to have really opened up in the, in the last sort of four or five years just you know in a way that which is never really possible before. I think that's the only thing, that's the main benefit, I think, of the internet, is just being this kind of opening up of styles and genres and, you know, and there's so much interesting music. Um, but, yeah, I'm really into, like, a fat white family, you know, in terms of bands, you know, Sleaford Mods, um, you know, all the fat whites kind of offshoots. What else have I been listening to? Um, yeah, that... that, that so much stuff I can, I can never really quite remember what it
0: is. Yeah. And the final question in the sound checks, so obviously hopefully not too long before we start going to gigs again. Um, what are you are looking forward to about the return of live shows? Um, Primitive Ignorant, your projects at the moment, you're going to be back on stage soon.
1: Yeah, I will be. It's been, it's been really difficult because well, as it has been for everybody. Um, you know, I'd block booked a lot, a load of rehearsals um, last March and then they got cancelled and then again last autumn and they got cancelled and um, because it involves quite a few different people, you know, I hadn't really quite worked out how to how to do it, but I've worked out how to do it. I just haven't managed to kind of get everybody together and stuff yet, but we will be doing some live gigs and stuff when it opens up properly, but it's kind of opening up kind of cautiously, isn't it? So, you know, fingers crossed that that that, that, it, that you know, things don't
2: have to reclose or anything that they don't, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hopefully the, the gradual reopening will, uh, will work out for, for the music business in particular. Um, yeah. As, as we said, great to have you on. We were actually discussing, uh, 80s Matchbox came up on one of our pods a few weeks ago when we were talking to Boy Kill Boy, Chris from the band picked oh, out Horse oh. of the Dog as his favorite album of the noughties. Oh um, really? And he even, yeah. he said he, he even tried to, uh, base his vocals on Guy. So, uh,
1: yeah, right. well, what, what's, what's
2: your reaction to
1: that? <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I really like Boy Cool Boy and I love Chris. Like, I just, he's such a lovely bloke. He's such a nice guy. And um, and actually, we saw them in um, in um, at South by Southwest in 2006 and it was it was an amazing gig. It was really, really, really amazing. And I thought his vocals were incredible. And um, yeah, I mean, he's always good. I sort of seem to bump into him quite a lot. Well, I have, haven't done, obviously, because of the pandemic and everything. But before that we had this weird thing where we've bumped into each other quite a lot and uh, yeah, yeah. Love him. He's great. So that, that's for him to say that is a, is, is a real honor. Yeah. Treasure
0: that. Cool. Cool. Well, let's talk about the 80s story then. Um she formed in 1999 and one of those first movers on the scene, I guess, coming out in Brighton, first album in 2002. Uh, we mentioned yeah. that Brighton connection already, but just, uh, Give our listeners an idea of what the scene was like in Brighton at that time—the guitar scene, the gig scene—when you guys were forming and getting going.
1: Uh, well, there wasn't. It was the kind of it was the kind of back end of Britpop, wasn't it? So, I mean, it, I, there just didn't seem to be anything. There was this band called Cheetah in Brighton, who you know, who who we we all. We, we, we thought were really cool and were really cool. And they used to wear like black leather jackets and stuff. And we used to go and watch them. And I'd actually moved to Brighton because I really liked this band called These Animal Men uh, when I was growing up and they, so they, but they were kind of breaking up around then. And, um, I mean, I think British music was in a, was in a kind of, um, awful, awful, awful state, wasn't it? I mean, you know, it was just the end of the end, wasn't it? And, uh, I, um, it felt, it felt, you know, it felt like something was going to happen. It was quite an exciting time, really, because I don't know, like we we all kind of met like uh, in this pub called the Heart and Hand. I, I'd sort of moved down there, so I was the only one who wasn't from Brighton. And I, we, we, I moved down there, and, and as soon as I sort of met Guy and the others, like I don't know, there was a, there was definitely like this kind of, um, I don't know, it, you know, it was the most magical thing ever, really. Like I don't, I don't, I don't think anything will ever be that. as magical as that and you know we were kind of um you know we sort of uh we had so much kind of belief in our 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 own ability not as musicians but in our ability to kind of um just be in a blistering rock and roll band you know whatever we thought that that entailed but you know yeah we had so much energy like and so much we were so up for it like and, and just loved being in each other's company and you know and, and um, I think we, we kind of felt like we were invincible you know Um it was, it was great it was awesome you know and, and I think at that time then then as we were getting going like you know we thought we were the only ones in the world doing it because you know that I think when you're that age you, you do just feel so indestructible but I remember then at the driving came out and um, we're like oh what they're doing it as well you know and uh, not saying we were like at the driving but you know and then and then obviously there's there was a whole wave of of, sort of yeah. guitar bands that came out, you know, off the back of uh, the strokes and stuff like that. So, um, uh, yeah, and then suddenly there was this this huge kind of scene, you know, and uh, uh, of what was it a scene? I don't know, but there was loads of bands anyway. When that hadn't been, Sim yeah. hadn't been, you know. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. So, talking about that that sound, then, Sim. You know, was it was it born out of? Um, Know, a sort of rebellious nature against that kind of soft rock that was going on on the radio at, at that time? Because obviously 80s Matchbox was like much more intense, you know, the brilliant bass line by itself. Was it sort of in response to that or, or was there something else that sort of inspired it?
1: Uh, well, um, I mean, we started off and it, and it was quite sort of, um, you know, the songs were, were a little bit slower and a little bit more kind of Pixie, sort of Stooges kind of thing, had this kind of groove and... Uh, you know, we were, I think we were just smoking loads of weed and stuff. And um, and then out of nowhere, I think, I think kind of, you know, we just kind of blew our mechanisms to pieces before, you know, anyone even knew who we were. So by that time, you know, I just remember like we were just, um, there were these really sort of strong E's going around in Brighton called Turbo Mitsubishi's and we were just sort of eating them all day, every day. And I think we sort of, yeah, shot ourselves to pieces, kind of, you know, to, before before we'd even really got going, and and somehow out of that, like this kind of mad sounds, kind of, um, you know, constructed itself, and we played the songs like a hundred times faster, and, and 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 just kind of got up, and we were so up for it. I mean, literally so up for it. And and I remember, you know, I'd never played the bass before, you know, so I was just sort of, you know, kind of told I was playing the bass, and I was fine with that, you know. Um, and uh, and Andy was, the, was you know, was the only one really who had any kind of musical sort of, um, you know, he was like 16 well 15 when he wrote quite a lot of that first album, you know, and he was already a grey eight guitarist. So, you know, he was kind of holding it all together in a way musically. Uh, but the rest of us just had, you know, so much kind of energy and, and kind of weird self-belief. I'm not really too sure what in, you know. Um, it was great you know and I think that's where that kind of deranged sound came from I mean you know everyone kind of I think bought some kind of weirdness to it. I think the bass kind of sounds cool because I just literally did not know how to play it at all and it's like now I know how to play a bit it's weird like I wish I I wish I was like I was back then it was like back then I was so so terrible at playing the bass I was like oh you know like I really want to be good you know and um, and uh And now I kind of look back on it and think, oh, that's kind of what gave it a sort of a bit of a peculiar sound because it was so loose. Um, But but yeah, and this kind of deranged guy was was, was obviously, you know, um, know, I guess it's all right to say it now because I'm not really in the band anymore, but was kind of one of the greatest frontmans ever, frontmen ever, you know, it was so it all kind of kind of came together and, and made sense. And I think the songs are quite deranged, but they had a kind of a pop sensibility to them, you know. It's weird because that, that stuff was getting played on Radio 1, you know, not, not you know, all day, every day, you know. Uh, it wasn't like playlisted on Radio 1 or anything, but, but but it was still getting played on Radio 1, you know, which is kind of mad to think, you know, for such an out there band, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Just picking up on that, Sim, uh, what made Guy such a good frontman then?
1: Oh, I mean, still the most, yeah, magnetic person I've ever met, really. Like, um, you know, from the the, uh, the first time I ever met him, you know, he was just, he just kind of had everything, you know, and, and was in Brighton was kind of already like, you know, kind of really well known and, and kind of was a sort of, you know, uh, a leader down there and, and um, just looked great and, and and just had so much belief in the band and and you know where it could go and and, and what it was going to do and and um yeah just i guess just got up there and was was just kind of you know sort of jim morrison Iggy pop but kind of his own thing like i don't think there was anyone really like him or 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 has been since you know um yeah yeah and, and really great great singer you know really great singer
0: yeah the distinctive thing for me obviously his performances at the front but just a look and feel band as well i can remember um the video for psychosis safari just playing on mtv2 constantly with that yeah. you know that black car and the red flame but that was such a cool video wasn't it yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah. even lee gallagher
0: said he likes that video yeah oh well there you go <laughs> yeah, I mean, brilliantly shot and it's just it's just one of those things that really stands out for me from that time is seeing that video getting played you know all the time on on mtv too um but it just captured as you say a bit the craziness of the band the look of the band and um yeah, it was pretty wild
1: yeah it was good wasn't it edgar wright did that video he did Shaun of the dead and stuff the director so it was um it, yeah it was cool i still remember that day actually yeah because those are the days i guess when you used to shoot a video from like six in the morning till like nine o'clock at night right you know, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours yeah like yeah it was it was, it was great it was a really good video wasn't it yeah that, that great in it and stuff yeah
0: yeah definitely tell us about the black car because that came became associated with the band didn't it with the, the red flames down the side
1: well that well that that the, the name of the band sort of came from the car so the car was there before the band it didn't exist but i think kind of you know in our, in our minds it did um and so when we signed to Universal, uh, there was a kind of a sort of honeymoon period where they were just spending loads of money. And then, and then they, they, they said, oh, why don't we buy the car? So they bought this car for like 10 grand or something and like got it done with our flames on the side. And I think I think we used to pretend that we we turned up in gigs to it and stuff, but we never really did. I think we turned up. We turned up at like a, a couple of festivals in it and stuff, maybe like right at the end. Maybe we got in the, in it like just as at the gate or something. Do you, know I
0: mean? <laughs> you weren't you weren't driving around the M25 in this.
1: No, we did all the press for the second album in the back of it, actually. And driving around London, we had speakers on the outside and it was like playing the album and it was pretty amazing because it was so like eye catching, you know what I mean? Like you're driving through central London with that and everyone's like looking at it. You so it's was pretty cool, but unfortunately, well, it was good, lots of homeless people slept in it in West London, so it was good that it served served you know served a good purpose but but um but I think at the end it had about two thousand parking tickets on it and stuff so uh, so so i don't know where it went in the end. I think it just got demolished
2: uh-huh. You mentioned there the, um, the the the
1: car sort of came
2: before the, the band name. So, can we just pick up on that? The band name obviously is very distinctive. Uh, where where yeah. did that come? How did that come about?
1: Well, we we were we, we we were taking acid and 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 we were walking around Brighton, which is where we used to kind of do that, and, and, it, and it was it was really amazing. Brighton at the time, we were talking about it. It was just something so sort of uh, mystical and magical, and, and and we really felt like um we really felt like Brighton was ours, and um, and Guy sort of said it when he saw a car, like it just sort of came out of his mouth. And uh, and anyway, so it ended up that's the, the name of the band. And yeah, it like really stuck out at the time because everybody was like, "There's something,s weren't they?" You know, "There's something, there's something." So mm. it was very sort of uh, it was it was quite indie, wasn't it? All the stuff, all the names, you know. Whereas now these days, like people have quite out there names, weird names, you know. It's quite it's like a different sort of. Uh, different scene now isn't it but um, but at the time yeah we stuck out like you know we stuck out and and that that was great really because i i feel like um we were quite um apart from all the other acts in in, in lots of ways and i think everybody kind of knew that and um yeah and i think that that's what kind of made me most proud about it actually is that we we kind of walked our own path really and and i felt like we weren't particularly uh you know, the band was popular, you know, you know, uh, but at the same time, it felt like it sort of felt like everyone was against us and no one liked us and we didn't like anyone either. You know, it was a bit like that, which is great <laughs> at the time, because you know what it's like. It's like when you're young and, and, and you're in a band and, and everything, you know, uh, you do just have this kind of well, I did anyway, like, of, oh, we're just not into them. We don't like them, you know, because you sort of feel a bit, maybe a bit threatened or a bit scared. Then I don't know, that's how I felt anyway. Yeah, so I never admitted if I liked anything you know, at all. Yeah, um, but yeah, it felt like we were out on our own,
2: you know, which probably wasn't true. So, let's um, let's touch on that, that debut album next, Sim. So, Horse of the Dog, and you know, we talked about how the kind of the, the sound of the band d- developed amongst yourselves. So, how did was there a, a grand master plan to sort of capture that intensity in the recording studio? Because it's uh, it's not always as easy as said than done, is it?
1: yeah um i guess so and i guess i guess so um and i think paul Tipler did a really great job and we just went to lincoln and banged out in two weeks which i suppose maybe that maybe seemed like a long time for it to record an album now i don't know i mean the second album took about six months to record but um the first album yeah we just went to lincolnshire like everyone kind of knew what they were doing as much as it was possible to know what you were doing in that band and um and we just yeah went and banged out. I think that that was the idea was to try and capture the capture the intensity of the live show and and and, and make it sort of really blistering kind of debut. Really, I mean, it was an incredibly short album, wasn't it? Like twenty six minutes long or something, twenty seven minutes. Or yeah, yeah. So
0: yeah,
1: yeah. And I thought Paul Tippler was great. Really, really love that guy. Yeah.
0: And how did that translate then into the reception it got when it was released? What? What was your memories of that sort of time and, and touring it as, as people were getting hold of the CD?
1: Um, I think I said before, like it, when you're in a band, you know, and, and, and it's kind of doing something, it, it's so hard to have any kind of perspective on, on what's really going on. So you have all these kind of ideas and, and feelings and, you know, they're kind of slightly sort of warped and demented from, kind of being on tour too long and reading too many magazines and getting too much kind of information thrown at you. And, and, you know, just just doing stuff constantly all the time that I always felt like we were kind of up against it really, that we, we weren't really getting anywhere, that we weren't really doing anything that it was just like a sort of momentous uphill struggle and that you know everything was getting kind of chucked back in our face. But when you look back on it now, I mean, you know, we had so much press and, 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 you know we, we were touring constantly all the time, and all the shows are full, and you know, right till the end, really. That we never had a point where in the 10 year reign of the band, where like, um, you know, we weren't playing to anybody, do you know what I mean? It was always full, it was always busy, there was always demand for it. But at the time, I just remember thinking, Oh, this is this is like a tragedy, like no one likes us, you know, and you know, everyone, everyone kind of uh, yeah, everyone hates us or something, you know. But, as I said, it's so hard to know, isn't it? Because I think, you know, what when 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 you, you have kind of management and labels and stuff, you know, when talking to you a lot and it's great and there's a lot of criticism. Um, there's a feeling that what you're doing is never really quite good enough, you know, which which I suppose is is is, is part of their job, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I guess there's always that next step to take, isn't it? that, you know, a few more records to shift or a bigger yeah, stage to I mean, play. I
1: just remember us getting getting bollocked constantly all the time, you know, um, <laughs> and, and, and being kind of in this kind of deranged kind of half state, you know, trying to kind of, uh, yeah. So I'm sure most fans kind of feel the same. It's such a whirlwind, isn't it? You, you, you just can't, you can't, yeah, contemplate really what's going on properly at all. You're just sort of going with it. Yeah. And then you come around 10 years later, and it's a bit like kind of coming back from being at war, you know, for 10 years and trying to sort of integrate with society and trying to kind of uh, make sense of what's actually happened and what you do next, you know? Yeah.
2: yeah. So was there, was there a point during, during the time of the band where you did kind of have that moment of realisation that actually, you know, we're doing all right here or, or was it, is it all uh, sort of in hindsight, you realise I've oh, actually, we've, we had some pretty remarkable achievements.
1: I think, I think I did sort of get moments, you know, where I thought, oh, you know, and this is not me being down on it. It was just like, you know, uh, the band was great. I loved being in the band, you know, um, I'd do it all again, you know, um, but I, um, yeah, at the time it just felt like, oh, you know, because you're always measuring yourself up against other people, particularly at that time. I think I think now it's slightly different because the internet's so vast and there's so many different magazines and there's so many different people talking about different things. But then it was kind of very much like what's going on in Enemy and Kerrang! was what was kind of going on, you know? And so you were always, I felt like we were always measuring ourselves up against what the other bands in, in those magazines were doing. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing this? And why aren't we going there? Why isn't this going on? You know, that was kind of my, my sort of, feeling at the time but um yeah you do have moments obviously where you think oh this is just amazing you know just getting getting paid to go around the world you know with, with four really good friends and, and 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 kind of you know play rock and roll music and and you know this is connecting with people and you know um and, and people really like it and and i think People will always remember that, you know. I think amazing gig experiences, you know, you stay with people forever, don't they? They never go because people are into music. You know, it's the most transformative thing that that will happen in your life. There's nothing that can compare to being, you know, how, how you get moved at a gig or a, co- a concert, or you know, how how music can kind of yeah, like catapult you into a different dimension, you know. And I feel like we feel like we did that with people, which is which is really important, you know. Um, you
0: know, and I really appreciate the people who came, you know, and supported us and stuff. Nice. Well, so we talked about the uh, debut album there. We'll pick up on, after the break, on the next couple of albums that came out and the rest of the 80s Matchbox story and what Sim's up to now.
2: He made USAA
1: insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. I'm Sim. I used to play bass in the 18th Matchbox Beeline Disaster and do Sleep the Boys in the Band podcast
2: you're listening to the boys in the band podcast for more naughty nostalgia check out our twitter facebook and instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this
0: welcome back to the boys in the band podcast where we're joined by sim from 80s Matchbox, beeline disaster uh sim we've uh, talked about the debut album there second album the royal society out in 2004 just a couple of years later um but we mentioned uh some of the influences you guys may have been under uh, for that debut album. But from what I've read, this changed a little bit by the second album uh, with Guy and Tom turning to Buddhism. Is this right? Can you tell us a bit more about this?
1: Uh, well, Guy was sort of born into Buddhism. So um, he would have always been a Buddhist all the way through, but Tom and Andy sort of joined him around 2000, around 2000. So by, 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 I mean, by the second album, I mean, I'm not sure i think things seem to be even more kind of uh deranged by, by that <laughs> point i mean you know there were certain people that who, who, who were kind of at it more than others you know myself included but um, i don't think andy and tom were really too um interested in that side of things but uh but yeah i mean by the time yeah we went to do the second album you know we had been on tour for about two years nonstop, stop and you know you, you, you kind of come off this this kind of mammoth um, expedition and then you know you have got to go come up with the next record you know really quickly and um, yeah we we kind of um, did did loads of uh, we went and did a load of demos with Owen Morris who did uh, who produced like the Oasis records yeah yeah that was that was amazing fun yeah that was really fun but we didn't do the record and then we did it with uh, Chris Goss who saw what we went over to LA and did it so we were back and forth from LA we were over there for a month and we'd come back go and play some gigs and then go over there for a couple of weeks and then we finished off in the in the desert yeah yeah it was amazing experience yeah yeah I mean it was it was it was it was really great um um and then we the label spent a lot of money recording that album and and um and a lot of time and yeah, it was quite an overblown record, but it was great. It was
2: great, great to make it and stuff, you yeah. uh, know, and be over in America. Nice experience. Yeah, cool. And uh, one of, uh, around that time as well, um, Mr. Mental was actually used in Shaun the, the Shaun of the Dead movie. You, know, you mentioned yeah. uh, you worked with the director before. Was that how that link came about? Because that, that was a another sort of moment of you know putting putting the eighties Matchbox Beanz disaster right into the mainstream. Yeah, yeah,
1: so we were in the film as well.
2: Um, oh, I, 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 I knew there were like yeah. posters and things in the film, I didn't realize you were in it.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well I, well, I think the scene might have been cut, or like, actually, <laughs> you know, well, we, we, we dressed up as zombies, and I think we were on the, on the bit like, um, where like they're watching it on the news, right? And then we were on television, but yeah, Edgar Wright is really cool. So he, he, um, he. Yeah, he was really into the band, did the, uh, the Sidecoaster Safari video. And then like he asked us to be in, um, whatever, whatever, use the song and, and, and be in the film and stuff. So, yeah, and then it turned out to be a massive film, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. i have to watch it back now, see if I can spot you. <laughs> yeah,
1: it comes on every now and again, doesn't it? Like on, on it.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so, Mr Mental, yeah, that was the first single off, off, the, off the next record.
0: And was it, was it Chicken as well that went onto a Nike advert? It just seems like that 80s matchbox sound just maybe for people who are making films or making adverts, maybe epitomise that, you know, that intense rock music that they're looking for.
1: Yeah, well, it's weird, isn't it, for such a sort of um, out there band like we. We seem to kind of pop up in these quite sort of uh, commercial places, you know. I mean, yeah. the night thing was just crazy, really. I, I think, I think just because a lot, you know, people who, who really love the band or something, you know, want to want to kind of, you know, wanted to use the music. And um, but that was that was that was pretty pretty mad, you know. Having like Wayne, you know, Chicken was like also like, you know, quite a sort of mad song, and just the idea of like. Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney and all the footballers like kicking a football around to it. Just, 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 just. just yeah, pretty really weird. But it was great. You know? um, not sure about Nike as a institution, but that's a different story. Isn't
2: it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we mentioned sort of uh, your, your early tours a little bit earlier, but um. Also became regulars on many festivals out there, like Reading and Leeds and, and Glastonbury. You know, do, doing those year in year out. What were your your memories of those times?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was great. Grass Glastonbury was great. Um, particularly, uh, we did a load of European ones. You know, they're they they're they really fun as well, actually. And yeah, um, uh, yeah. It's weird though. I mean, they, they all kind of blur into one as well. You know, because you're. You know, each weekend you'll go and do a different festival and sometimes like, say, I think we came to Glastonbury from Denmark once. I seem to remember that. So you're sort of in Denmark and then you sort of pass out and then you wake up and you're at Glastonbury. And it's all just this kind of, uh, you know, you sort of forget sometimes what country you're in and what, what festival's going on. And, you know, it's just all really confusing. But yeah, it was a real privilege to, to play Glastonbury, you know, a bunch of times. And, you know, and all those other festivals. Uh, its really great.
0: Yeah, you mentioned touring around there, and she came back to that American connection. How did it go down over there, over the uh, other side of the water?
1: Yeah, I think people liked it. I think, I mean, it was, it was more, it was, you know, I guess in a way, like, we made more sense to Americans than we did over, over in England, because there was no one really quite as heavy as us that was being talked about in the NME anyway. Do, do you know what I mean? Everyone mm-hmm. else. Know, it was it was it was a much more indie thing that was going on um and so we, we were kind of like quite heavy sort of rock really uh so we didn't fit into quite a lot of those well we you know we didn't we didn't kind of um make sense alongside a lot of the other bands that were in were you know in that kind of scene or whatever so um yeah i think they liked it yeah yeah, yeah. We did i hooking up with the queens of the stone age guys and doing a tour with them and things like that yeah system of a down and yeah
0: yeah, you and Queens of the Stone Age seem like quite a good match up for a yeah, set.
1: Definitely, yeah. So we did we did a really great tour with them actually once. Amazing, yeah. Really, really yeah.
0: Cool. Nice lineup. Um, third album, Blood and Fire, in twenty ten. Uh, you obviously split the following year. So, what was the what was going on in the band by that point? How much have you changed by that stage?
1: Crikey. <laughs> <laughs> that point I mean, Jesus Christ I mean I don't really know what had been going on for about six years we were just sort of in Brighton getting annihilated and you know our management and um, everybody was kind of sitting around waiting for us to write a uh, radio one single you know um, and we were churning out so many songs and, and you know it wasn't really happening as in we were you know that, that's what everybody wanted from us, like labels and, and management and stuff. And um, it, 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 it didn't seem to be happening. And, um, you know, we were sort of seeming to be going further and further into the abyss in Brighton, you know. I mean, by that point, Andy had left and he was kind of one of the main songwriters. And, and um, you know, Rich joined. And then by blood and fire, Rich had left to join Nine Inch Nails. And then... Tristan had joined, and then Mark had left, and then like it was just uh, you know it was it was you know do you know what I mean? It all just became a bit of a, a bit a bit a bit messy, you know. And um, you know, on a personal level, you know, my sort of drink and drug addiction had kind of gone beyond beyond the beyond. And um, you know, we finally got that, that third album out in like May 2010, and it was some kind of it was a triumph of sorts you know uh a sort of tragedy that it took us so long um but a triumph i mean we came back and you know people were still into it you know i mean those songs were getting played all over radio one by zay low and um you know we did a we did a bunch of tours and stuff but by the time it got to the autumn you know about six months later like yeah like it uh kind of imploded really um Yeah, then we came back again in 2012 off the back of the nightcap and stuff. Uh, um, But yeah, do you know? Do you know Jeff Katani? That roadie, he's he's sort of worked with quite a lot of the bands. Worked with us and the others and uh, uh, Little Man Tate and the Automatic. Anyway, he's probably quite a good person to tell you what exactly happened at the end. i mean it was, yeah, yeah. the the- the roadies get a good viewpoint do they yeah yeah well it was just absolute sort of uh, chaos really the tour tours were just 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 sort of kind of yeah particularly unhinged um but you know that's probably probably mostly my fault i think yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did but you feel yeah. pers- did you feel
0: personally you needed to get away from the band at that point
1: Um. I didn't think that at the time. Um, And I was kind of unable to tour anymore. Um, That was the general um, consensus. Um, And at the time, that didn't make any sense to me. But I mean, I I wasn't really very well. So with the benefit of hindsight, yeah, like, you know, Mm. the band needed to to kind of end at that point, I think. Um, And, um, you know, yeah, we, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have the kind of the, maybe the togetherness and and the unity and, you know, it's so hard, isn't it? Like, you know, you do a band and, 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 you know, it's, it's the most incredible thing ever. And, 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 you know, no one really ever gets to see that bit before you get signed and before other people get involved when, you know, you're so unified and everyone's doing the same thing and everyone wants the same thing. And you're like the, the best of friends and like, you know, you're, you're ready to kind of, you know, um, destroy the world and then and then you know it's so hard particularly with a band like ours you know that was so sort of combustible and so much kind of incendiary incredible sort of mad chemistry that to to kind of the fact that it kept going for 10 years you know because we we, you know we didn't you know we didn't we broke all kind of convention we weren't you know we weren't um you know we weren't like careerists we weren't like um particularly uh you know, professional in the sense of like you know it was just so anarchic and so chaotic and that it that it was amazing that we kept it together for that long, really um and um I think, yeah, I' just think the fact that you yeah, know we did still come together on stage and and put on a really really amazing performance. I mean, we did it and we came back in two thousand and twelve I mean I'd still do it again you know happily, gladly you know. you know it's uh. These, these matters are complicated.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so following that, tour in two thousand and twelve. Obviously, the band went their separate ways again. But you, uh, you, you, you formed a group called Piano Wire uh, initially, and then onto Primitive Ignorance. So, so, tell us about those projects. Uh,
1: so, we sort of started a third, 80s, fourth, eighties Matchbox album. Um, so, when we when we got back uh, together in two thousand and twelve, and. for for a myriad of reasons it didn't you know it didn't really come together but me and Andy had written like two or three songs um and it was really great because I hadn't really seen Andy for a while because he'd left the band in 2004 and so yeah we just started writing um some more songs together and decided to do a band and um yeah we did it for about four years you know it was really good and and, you know he's a sort of master songwriter I learned so much stuff about music and we work really closely we wrote so many songs in that band um, you know and uh, but yeah I mean it's just hard to keep bands going isn't it and I felt like with Primitive ignorant I sort of felt like I'd come to the point where I really wanted to work in a different way I wanted to I wanted to um, use drum machines and I wanted to, to, to make music that was nothing like piano wire or 80s matchbox that was, that was going to be you know, that there were no real sort of boundaries and and there was no kind of rules and that we can make all kinds of music and make pop music and, you know, get some female vocalists in and we've not really worked with female vocalists before. And um, yeah, use synthesizers, you know, drum machines. And it's just been really exciting because there's no, I can do whatever I want really. I collaborate with different artists and stuff, which is really great. and Some really cool people like, you know, Mick Jones from The Clash and, Joe from Idols and international teachers of pop and war and drugs and yeah so it's been, it's been yeah it's been really great. Yeah, cool really and cool you're
0: collaborators. Yeah, absolutely. And you were saying you're just working on a new album from that yeah from that so project as well.
1: Yeah, I do I just I done one album and then I done just done an EP uh, which is out at the moment just on digital uh, and um, yeah I just do quite a lot of writing with a guy called Le Junk uh, and. Um, yeah just working on the next record now yeah so i'm not sure sure. where that where that's going to go but it's uh, it's really really good to kind of evolve all the time and do something different and yeah there's no there's no real sort of rules or a specific genre with it you know it's just um, do do whatever i fancy really yeah
2: yeah sounds good and yeah so look forward to that and uh as we mentioned at the start, getting back on on stage at some point soon, hopefully as well. But um, yeah. we're going to finish off with the encore, as we always do. Sim, three three quick questions to finish us off. Um, yeah. First up, um, Brighton best night out in Brighton. Best, right.
1: one, back roll, roll,
2: roll, roll back, yeah, roll back the years. Where was the best night to, best place to go out in Brighton? Oh, back
1: in- Mad for it this was possibly the best one, wasn't it? Was that still going when you guys were there?
2: Mad for it. What was it going?
1: mad for it at the Pavilion Tavern
2: that's pretty, that does ring a bell Must be, p- yeah. probably some drunken hazy memory
1: <laughs> <laughs> North Street you know yeah 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 yeah. yeah yeah, that's what I reckon
2: yeah nice good shout I, remember yeah, the venue, definitely.
1: Yeah.
0: I just remember just so many nights down on the Concord too down on the seafront so many yeah. it was just like it, it seemed to be on like the roll call for all the bands that were touring through Brighton would, would play that at some point and uh, it was a nice tight venue down there
1: and back, yeah, back then there was just so many bands playing there, wasn't there, and stuff, yeah. And yeah. then later on there was a club night called Born Bad, which was really good.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a great place, isn't it? So cool. Um, Second question on the encore, Sim, what was the best gig you did with 80s Matchbox? Ah,
1: huh. the best gig? Uh, one of the Glastonbury ones was probably, yeah, that was really great. Um, yeah. All those shows with Queens of the Stone Age were, were pretty amazing, Uh yeah. Brixton yeah. one was great um, but yeah I'll, I'll always probably say one of those Glastonbury ones in 203 or 204 were pretty amazing yeah, yeah sure I hung up on the bill on the second stage and stuff so it was great yeah really good.
0: just looking out on a sea of people
1: yeah yeah and, and you know it's I guess you sort of why well, did you know you grew up with Glastonbury don't you and, and, and
2: yeah I think it it signified something quite special to me, I think, playing. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. yeah, absolutely hugely significant. Um, right, last up then, Sim, what's the 80s Matchbox song that you're proudest of? I really like
1: Temple Music on okay. the second album. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to be honest, I haven't listened to it, to any of it, any of it for, for a long time. But yeah, I really like that song. And I really like, it was a B-side called Alchemy that I really liked, but I don't think many people heard that. Yeah.
0: What, what was it about those tracks that stands out? Just, just loving the sound of them, or the way they came together in the first place?
1: Yeah, I, I just like I like the fact that it, it doesn't sound like something we necessarily do. You know, it wasn't sort of all out, trashy sort of rock and roll. It was a bit like a sort of uh, yeah, there was a sort of subtlety to them that I thought was really nice.
0: Nice, that's good stuff, Sim. Yeah. Sim, thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. It's been really interesting to get the '80s Matchbox story.
1: Thank you Thank you for having me. Matt. Yeah, thank you.. Yeah, yeah.
2: Thanks. Th- thanks very much. It' was a pleasure having
1: you on. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com/bundle.
2: Restrictions apply.